The scripture is found this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 17 through 24. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a slave when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a slave is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a slave of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. So brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. I think we all together looked at the news when it came down a few months ago. And two 12-year-old girls invited another 12-year-old girl to come home with them. And she did, and she came to spend the night. What those two 12-year-old girls were doing was uh, actually plotting, as they have been for several months, they were plotting the very death of their 12-year-old friend. As a matter of fact, what they did was to invite her home, to their home, to one of their homes, to spend the night. And they lured her into the woods. When they did, they carried their knives with them, and they stabbed this other 12-year-old girl 19 times. Stabbed her in the legs, in the arms, and in the torso, and left her to die. Amazingly enough, the 12-year-old girl who had been stabbed 19 times, her, her black fleece jacket coated with blood, crawled out of those woods to the edge, and there at a gravel road, she couldn't get any farther. It was a gravel road that is unused by cars, uh, used only by runners or, or bikers. A man was running, I think, ran past her, saw her, called 911, got help for her, and she survived. When these two 12-year-old girls were asked why they did what they did, their response was that they did it because of a fictitious character. My assumption is that, that they didn't know the character was fictitious, but a fictitious character named Slender Man. Slender Man on the Internet. And they wanted Slender Man to reveal his face. And in order for Slender Man to reveal his face, uh, one must do something that would be worthy of Slender Man's response. And so what they thought would merit his response is killing their 12-year-old friend. There was no signs of animosity between the three girls. They seemed to get along fine. People at school said this seemed to be uh, done for one reason and one reason only. 
for slender man. We look at that and we hear about it and we see the news and we think, that's horrific. Who would ever imagine doing something like that? You combine it with the, the, the statistic that last year, all, of all the murders in the United States, only one was committed by a girl under the age of 13. For girls to murder is unusual. For young girls to, to murder hardly ever happens. These two 12-year-olds are being tried as adults for this calculated, premeditated attempt to kill. Why would they do it? Well, we look at it and we wonder why. that They did it to achieve a certain status. They could say, I have seen Slender Man's face. And while we look at that and go, that is bizarre, deep within every one of us is a God-given desire to Know and be known to belong to be. There's nothing wrong with that. God has given you that desire to to know and be known. You want others to know you. You want to know them. Where that runs amok is when you decide that in order for that to happen, you'll make it happen. You'll domineer or dominate or control and it can happen at multiple levels the most extreme is a couple of 12 year old girls doing what they did the least extreme perhaps is the fact that you walk into school and you make fun with other people of another kid because you want to belong to that crowd you want to be recognized by that person Or in your business practices, you conduct yourself differently because it will enable you to move up the uh, ladder of success, we call it. And so you act differently as a business person than others. Or as a single person, you know you shouldn't do it, but you will... Uh, You will sell your body, in a sense, to secure a relationship with a guy that may uh, meet these certain standards you have. This desire to know and be known but carried further results in the desire for status. I want to be at this level, and the Corinthians had their own status-seeking issues. Uh, It turned out to be that they wanted to be rather religious people. The problem has been called the Corinthian women problem because women had come to faith in Christ, had gotten super spiritual as a result. And there were a couple of things we've dealt with in the past couple of weeks. Some of them said, my husband doesn't know Christ, should I just divorce him? And Paul said, no. Others uh, reflected on their husband's uh, uh, lack of spirituality. Should I divorce him? No, Paul says. Some even carried it within the context. If I'm going to stay in marriage uh, to him, then there should be absolutely no sex in this marriage. And Paul says, no to that. Sex in marriage is God's will, God's doing, God's act, critically important. So Paul says, no, 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 to that thinking. And in place of that, he gives two principles that come right out of the text here. 
Number one, God has not called you to a new spiritual status, but to a new way of living. That's what he says. Look at this, verse 17. Only let each person lead the life the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. All right, so let's pause for a moment. Only let each one live the life the Lord has assigned to him. This touches on the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God. We talk about this in my Old Testament class. Some of my students are here this morning. And in order to understand the word sovereign, just simply remove all the letters but the word reign. R-E-I-G-N. And the sovereignty of God means that God reigns over the course of events of human history. God is in control. And Paul says here, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him. What does that mean? It means that God has engineered some circumstances in your life that are unique to you. You act in certain ways. You come into a certain context. That's that's you. And, And so what Paul is saying is you are you, and God has assigned some things that make you uniquely you be that. Live that. And then he says, and to which God has called him. That word call appears eight times in these few verses. Every time it means a call to salvation. That God has called you out of darkness into light. And this is how he applies it. Was anyone at the time of his call to salvation already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. What does he mean by that? Well, circumcision in the Old Testament was a sign of the covenant between God and Abraham, and baby boys on the eighth day of their lives were circumcised. But you fast forward into Roman times, and thankfully this is not how it goes down today, but Romans often played their games in the nude. And so as they did, the men would be embarrassed by this Jewish act of circumcision, and there was actually a surgery to cover that. And Paul says, there's no need for such. Let him not seek to remove the marks of his circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. And then we have a problem. Verse 19, uh, Paul says something that any Jew, and Paul was a Jew, any Jew reads, and it's going to jar him. A Jew is going to say, I can't believe that Paul, a good Jew, is saying this. Here's what he says, verse 19. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. So what's the problem with that? First of all, you go after this sign of the covenant. And Paul is saying the sign of the covenant just doesn't, doesn't count for anything. And any Jew who reads that is going to go, oh, what do you mean by that, Paul? But then there's a second problem. Right in the sentence itself, Paul says, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but keeping the commandments of God. And one of God's commandments for every Jew was, uh, Jewish boy was what? Circumcision. 
So Paul is saying circumcision doesn't count for anything. Uncircumcision doesn't count for anything. Only thing that counts is keeping the commandments of God. And one of the commandments of God happens to be what? Circumcision. We have a problem. Paul appears to be contradicting himself. How is it that he can say you got to keep God's commandments when he has just negated one of the things God has commanded people to do? How can he do that? Let me put it into a context that you might get today. Paul could write today to us, and it would be more fitting, perhaps, neither baptism counts for anything, nor not being baptized, but keeping the commandments of God. And when I say that, you'll go, for real? Why? Oh, because I thought, my kids, I've just got to get them baptized. I've got to get them to that moment. And once I get them to that moment, everything is done. That's the destination. Or perhaps you think of the time you were baptized. And you remember how it felt to go into the water and come out of the water. You recall that experience. And it was so wonderful for you. And all of a sudden, then, your pastor stands up and says, here's something the church celebrates. Here's something we love as a church. And it doesn't count for anything. And it's going to catch you by surprise. But even further, if you go to Matthew 28, in the Great Commission, what does Jesus say to do? Go into all the world, make disciples, and do what with them? Baptize them. So if I say that, go into all the world, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, but I say, eh, that doesn't count for anything then all of a sudden you're going to say, if Jesus said to do something, you're saying it doesn't count for anything, you're contradicting Jesus. So what does he mean? It's all in the context of the call. When God calls you out of darkness into light through the gospel of Jesus Christ and saves you, there is absolutely nothing you can add to that that will make it more effective. Baptism isn't going to do that. In the Old Testament, the covenant that God made with Abraham was a done deal. If you didn't get the sign of circumcision, or you did get the sign of circumcision, it didn't change God's heart. God's heart toward his people was the same. God makes covenants and he keeps them. God saves people and he keeps them, period. That's what Paul is saying. So if baptism isn't this destination, if baptism isn't, oh, I walk into the water and I come out, what is? Paul says, keep the commandments. In other words, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. If you are going to walk with God, if you're going to say, I'm a follower of Christ, it ought to be obvious by the way you live. That's what Paul is saying. What does that mean? That means for the 20 or so small business owners who are members of this church, you ought to do business differently. People ought to look at you and they ought to interact with you in your business affairs and go, there's something different about him. There's something different about her. That's what it means. It means for the 80 or so uh, teenagers who show up, uh, will show up tonight at youth next door. 
that you shouldn't go there tonight and sing the songs and celebrate the awesomeness of God and walk into middle school tomorrow, walk into high school tomorrow and, and tell the dirty jokes and laugh at the dirty jokes with everybody else. There ought to be a difference in your life. And if there isn't a difference in your life, you've got to ask yourself, was last night real or is this morning real? Was last night a joke and this morning is who I really am? It means for the almost hundred singles who attend this church that your sex life ought to be remarkably and significantly different than the sex life of other singles. You ought to remain sexually pure until you're married, period. Doesn't matter how long you've dated, doesn't matter that you're engaged and you're about to be married, none of that. You should be different, live differently, act differently, talk differently. There should be something different about you. God hasn't called us to a new spiritual status. He has called us to a new way of living, a way of life that emulates Christ. Share a couple of things with you. They're fascinating in this area. British author A.N. Wilson, who only until 2007, 2008, sometime, was known for his scathing attacks on Christianity, celebrated Easter in 2009 at a church with a group of other church members, proclaiming that the story of the Jesus of the Gospels is the only story that makes sense out of life and its challenges. Wilson said, quote, my own return to faith has surprised none more than myself. My belief has come about in large measure because of the lives and examples of people I have known, not the famous, not saints, but friends and relations who have lived and faced death in light of the resurrection story or in the quiet acceptance that they have a future after they die. Matthew Paris, a British atheist, who visited Malawi in 2008, wrote an article, and here was the title. As an atheist, I truly believe Africa needs God with a big G. He wrote, I've become convinced of the enormous contribution that Christian evangelism makes in Africa. I used to avoid this truth, but Christians, black and white, working in Africa, do heal the sick, do teach people to read and write, and only the severest kind of secularist could see a mission hospital or school and say the world would be better without it. What is he saying? The proof of the pudding is in the eating. If you truly know Christ, it will, he will ooze out of you he will he will be he will emanate from you you will see him and folks around you will see him in you it will change the way you live god hasn't called you to a new spiritual status some new level he's called you to a new way of living but then paul turns the corner in the very next verse in verse 20 and he says this, each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Verse 21, were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. 
God hasn't called you, number two, to a new social status, to a new social status, but to a new way of thinking. What is it? One-third of Corinth was comprised of bondservants, of slaves. They were mostly worked in the houses of their owners, on the property of their owners. Uh, They were treated as property, not people. Quintilian, who was a rhetorician during Paul's day, said this, that you shouldn't beat your children with poles, only slaves were worthy of such a beating. Another third of Corinth's population were freedmen. They were manumitted slaves, slaves that had been in some way emancipated. But freedmen worked differently, and this is a significant difference between slavery in America and slavery in Rome. Freedmen, almost all slaves became freedmen by age 30. They had served 12 to 15 years as a slave, but through faithful service to their masters, they would become freedmen. As freedmen, what changed was fascinating. They still owed their master maybe a certain number of days per week or months or year, whatever the arrangement was made between them and their masters. So they still owed their slaves, uh, their masters something. They committed and pledged to respect their masters for the rest of their lives. So they had this commitment to their masters to respect them But on the flip side, their masters decided this. Their masters said what they would do is to, because they were in an economically advantageous position, they covered them. They they would essentially have their backs. And so the masters also committed themselves to their freedmen for the rest of their lives. The relationship shifted now. With that understanding, let's read again. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. Why might it bring concern? As the gospel is sweeping through Corinth, guess who's coming to Christ? Bondservants, freedmen, and those who own bondservants, and those who are masters of freedmen, they're all coming to Christ. And immediately, the social context isn't changing. So what might happen? You show up to worship in the same place And you look across the way, and there's somebody who is in a different social status than you are. And what is your thinking? Wow, I need to leave this social status and get to that one. Or your thinking is, I'm not good enough. I'm a bondservant. I'm really not good enough to be here. Now, how does this play out today? Here's how. There are a few subcategories where this plays out today. Notice all of this is in the context of marriage. We'll talk about singles and widows next week. All of this is in the context of marriage. Here's how it plays out. Significantly among divorcees. How? Old country song that says, I'm going through the big D, and it don't mean Dallas, right? Talking about divorce. 
And divorcees have a tendency to view themselves with a big D on their backs. In their minds, everybody views them that way. God views them that way. They went through divorce, and therefore, for the rest of their lives, they're labeled. What is Paul saying? He's saying to the bond servants with the big B on your back, forget the B, a bond servant on your back. Here's what I want you to do. Replace that with a big M. I am your master. You are a freedman now. That's what he says. Check it out. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. All of a sudden, you've been manumitted. You've been emancipated from your old slavery way of life. And you are now with a new master with a big M. Yes, you may still have a little M, a master with a little M. But the new master with the big M is in your life. And if there's any label that needs to be on you, what God is saying, it's the big M. You have a new master, and that big M replaces the big D that you wear around on your back. Or there's another group, singles who want to be married. They walk around often with what? Big S's. I'm single. I'm the only person my age who's not married. I'm the only person. I hate this. You know, if I'm with my mom, she's going to try to hook me up with somebody. She's going to say, have you met this guy or have you met this girl? It's just just my life. I'm a single. Everything around my life revolves around my singleness. And what God says here is you are a manumitted freedman. You are free from that. No, you are not identified by that. Here is what you're identified. There's a big M now on your back called master. I have become your master. And that letter that you once wore, You no longer wear. I haven't called you to a new social status, but to a new way of thinking. This changes how you think. Or some of you know the dumbest thing you ever did in your life. And if you had to answer this question, if I had one regret, immediately that one regret comes to your mind. And on more than one time, on more than one occasion, that one sin that just tangled you up and wrecked your life and wreaked havoc on your life, you wake up in the morning and it's like a broken record. And you hear it again and again and again and again. And it's just this sin and you feel so unworthy to walk into worship because you look around and you just assume nobody else has done anything nearly as bad as you have. So whatever that is, you put that letter on the back. If it's adultery, it's an A. If it's alcoholism, you've got the big A on your back and, and that's just who you are. And what Paul says It's whatever station you came to Christ in. If you truly came to Christ, he didn't leave you in that station. He replaced whatever that big letter of sin on your back with the big M that says, I am your master. You are my freedman. I love you deeply. Our relationship has changed. That old thing enslaved you. Now you in Christ are free. Amen? Free. Wow. Oh, how little we think of our God and how little we think of ourselves because of how little we think of our God. 
For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. How does this happen? Glad you asked. Verse 23, you were bought with a price. That's how it happens. Last night, in this very building, there was a dinner. All these chairs were out. Tables were set up nicely. And it was a meal for Freedom Life prison ministry. And it really came down to a tale of two Davids. Earlier in the program last night, a a man by the name of David Sharp stood right here and held the microphone. He's in his 50s, I imagine, and he shared the story of his 30-year addiction to heroin. That's what landed him in jail. His 30-year addiction to heroin has given him this long tenure as a prisoner. He's still incarcerated. He's out to sing, and he left last night to go right back into custody. David told his story, and I watched. Everybody was busy eating, but when David talked, they dropped their forks. They glued to him as he humbly told the story of his heroin addiction, how God gloriously saved him and uses Freedom Life Ministry in his world in a huge way. There were a few other things. And then the second David came up on this stage, used the very same microphone. His name, David Geis. David Geis heads up all the prisons in North Carolina, has 22,000 employees who work for him. He's the one responsible for making sure that David Sharp is behind bars. And so David Geis walks up and stands, same spot, same microphone, and tells his own story of being a slave to sin and how Christ gloriously changed him. Oh, his story was very different. He, he was a kid who hurt his parents because his bedroom was right underneath theirs. He would hear them praying for him at night. His story was very different, but David Guy said, I was lost in my sin and I came to Christ. Here's a guy who, who uh, helped uh, uh, author and sponsor the Justice Reinvestment Act and travels all over the country talking about that as it has become a model for states all over the United States. And David Guys is in the same room as David Sharp. And both Davids came to Christ. Both Davids were lost in their sin. And guess what? In heaven... God doesn't have a spot for David Geist because he's the boss of 22,000 people that's somehow elevated and a spot for David Sharp because he's wasted most of his life being addicted to heroin. God doesn't somehow relegate Sharp to one spot and Geist to another and say, okay, this is the consequences. No, why? 
Why? Because David Sharp, who is a prisoner, is really free. And David Geis, who was a prisoner to his sin, is really free. That's the gospel. That's the good news of Christ. That's what this is about. That's what Paul is saying. You aren't identified by past sins. You aren't identified by your station in life. You aren't identified by your status. You aren't identified by your spirituality. You're identified by one person and one person alone. And he is the God who bought you through his son, Jesus Christ, who hung on the cross and bled and died for your sins. He is your savior. And so... You were bought with a price. Don't become a bondservant of men. Ah, do not bow at the altar of social status. Do not bow at the altar of spiritual attainment. It was New Year's Eve, 18... 86. Ira Sankey tells the story in his book on hymns when a young girl who worked for a household, the wife was her boss, had a disagreement with her, got fired. And as a result, was homeless. Her boss was not only her boss, her boss provided her a place to live, and the loss of job meant a loss of a roof over her head, as well as her income. She was walking through the city streets, it was a little brisk, when she heard the sound coming out of an open-air tent, and the words that were coming across the cool breeze of that night. I hear the Savior say, Thy strength indeed is small. Child of weakness, watch and pray. Find in me thine all in all. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain and he washed it white as snow. Oh, that girl thought, I'm a fired servant, household servant. There's no way I can walk under that tent. But if I could have anything tonight, it would be that Jesus they're singing about. So she stood on the outside and listened. Then the young preacher got up and preached a sermon. wasn't a long sermon, Sankey recalls. But he got up and preached a sermon. And he headed out toward the nearby mission. And when he did, he heard the footsteps of the girl running behind him. He turned to see who it was. It was this girl. And she said, sir, I, I heard the words to that song. And I was just wondering. Do you think they apply to me? 
that young preacher said, oh, yes, they do. She said, I, I want, I want to know that Jesus. That's the call Paul is talking about. And she said, the preacher said, come with me. And took her to the mission. And there, those ladies led her to Christ. Not to a new social status. Do you know what she was after praying to give her life to Christ? A fired servant girl. But she had a new master. Oh, if we could get this.